today on Growth Mindset University. Okay, so I see what you're doing. You're trying to make it a formula. I know because your listeners want a formula because we all want a formula, right? So you're just like, Jim, I know you've never done this, but tell us the formula. And what I'm going to tell you is... You're listening to Growth Mindset University, educating tomorrow's leaders with lessons from today's entrepreneurial elite. It's a progressive new age of business we find ourselves in, and we'll help you find the success you seek by listening to today's industry professionals and thought leaders teach us the lessons we should have learned in school but didn't. Now, please welcome your host, Jordan Paris. Today on the podcast, I've got with me Jim McKelvey. Jim co-founded the payments firm Square with Jack Dorsey in 2009 after he had trouble selling a $2,000 piece of art from his studio. He currently ranks on the Forbes 400 list of the world's richest people, clocking in with, at this time, when I'm recording this, a net worth of $2.6 billion. Uh, he's up about $100 million this week, I happen to notice. Uh, and of course, he doesn't know that. He doesn't know how much he's up this week. He doesn't even know his net worth, as you'll see, uh, as you'll hear in this interview. He's a really humble guy. Anyhow, he remains on Square's board, but has started a new company called Invisibly, which powers micropayments for journalism and publishing. And as a serial entrepreneur, he started at least seven companies ranging from a CD cabinet maker to a glass blowing studio. He also sits on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis and started a nonprofit launch code to teach people how to program. And in March 2020, he released a book, which is the subject of our conversation today, called The Innovation Stack. And it details what it means to be a true entrepreneur and what it takes to build a resilient, world-changing company, which he has done several times over, most notably with Square. And this was a great conversation. We talked seemingly for 40 minutes, the first 40 minutes, about copying. I don't know that there are any other podcasts out there quite like this one. This was a unique conversation for Growth Mindset University and the podcast world. I really enjoyed my conversation with Jim. And it's funny, I presented a an idea of a new product to Jim about 20 minutes in, 20 or so minutes in. And the way that he questioned and probed about the idea and asking me, you know, is this, is this real? Is that really the best way to go about it, Jordan? He had me thinking differently about the idea within a minute. And I guess that's what bringing an idea to a multi-billionaire can do. It can have you thinking very differently, very quickly. And I hope that this conversation may even make you start thinking differently about some things in the entrepreneurial world as well. Now you can share this episode of Growth Mindset University with Jim McKelvey with the link jordanparis.com slash EP205. That is jordanparis.com slash EP205. That's the link that you can send to your friends and your family and perhaps your business partner. And now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the co-founder of Square, Jim McKelvey. I long for the day when I can just like, when I've really, really made it and I don't need to rely on social media, but right, it's just, it makes no, me you, money right now. It's your job. It's your job. I know. Yeah, you got to do it. Um, and I don't, so I don't. I mean, um, 
if if I was trying to promote something seriously, uh, I would have to change my life in a bizarre number of ways. So social media is just one of them. Yeah. But, um, so we'll. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what. We'll we'll start. This will be a lot of fun. So I have. Is it cool if we start? Yeah. Let me just make sure that my other crap is turned off here. And it mm-hmm. is good. Thanks for being Fire away. like that. Yeah. So I have Jim McKelvey with me. He is the co-founder of one of my favorite companies in the world, Square. Jim, up front, I have to thank you for making me a good amount of money with the stock over the past few years. I oh, bought in. I bought yeah. in at, at thirty-eight bucks, an average share price of thirty-eight bucks. Uh, I I got it. I was at like thirty-six, and then I like kept buying more in the forties, which was awesome. Yep. And uh, I wrote it like I remember. It just kept. You remember when it was just like skyrocketing? It went from like forty to fifty to to sixty. It was like so, 2017, 2018. I don't follow the stock. Oh my god! <laughs> at all, my friends do. Um, but it stresses me out too much to know what the stock price is, so I never look. Isn't like your you can, like? Isn't your net worth reliant on it? Yeah, but I don't care about that, and yeah, it's just that, my net worth stresses me out too. So, like, um, the the time I, uh, well, I'll, I guess you'll have to edit this because it's I'm just fumbling for words here. But, um, I didn't realize that I'd crossed a billion dollars until my wife one morning gave me a a wallet. Actually, I show it to you because this is a Video, vis, visual thing. Um, yeah, she gave me this thing. This a little uh, little billfold, and it's got uh, the three commas on it. Uh huh. Oh. Except wow. that when she gave it to me, she handed it to me like this. So I thought it was six six six, and the number of the beast. And I was like, "What? You think I'm the devil?" She's like, "No, no, you're a billionaire." And I was like, That's "What?" Funny. So, uh, so I don't look. I don't look. It's really healthy. It's I, healthy for me. I mean, a lot yeah. of people can handle this stuff. I can't. So I don't look. Mm. Well, I, I'll say I, I wrote it from the, the 38 to the – and this was back in the day when I, I went through a phase just checking my portfolio. I would check it like multiple times a day. And then I went a few years without checking it, which is so much healthier. So I I saw it like hit 100 like real quick. I was like, damn, I doubled my – more than doubled my money very quickly. And uh, and then, you know, it went – it was in like at like 80 and then 60 and then the pandemic happened. It went down to 38 and I was like, okay, as soon as it gets back to the 90, 100 area, like I'm selling. And it oh, got- Oh, no. So I sold it. I sold it at election year. I sold it. Oh, like, man. I sold, and all the unpredictability, the pa- unpredictability of the pandemic, I sold it at 90. And then all, and then it just goes to, it's at like 158 today. I'm like, oh, my God. News to me. I, I mean, honest <laughs> to God, I have no idea where the stock is. I don't look. I love it. Well, so. I, I mean, regardless, uh, I- like I said, thank you for uh, for making me some money over over the past couple of years. It was my big winner for a while, and uh, and I and not just from the stock, but I used to be my first entrepreneurial endeavor. Not even really, I wouldn't call myself an entrepreneur. I was like a a, a really a, a, an independent contractor. I was a yeah. I was okay. a personal trainer on my own, going having in home clients as a nineteen year old kid. And and what did I use to get paid? I used this the Square chip reader. I would swipe cards on there, and uh, I'd send invoices. And yeah, and uh, I still, I still, I'm not a personal trainer anymore. But there's one client I have that Stripe just did not work for him, 
and I, I, I still get, uh, I still get square invoices, uh, sent to him. And Good. so Good. really just an amazing tool. Uh, I want people to know that the innovation stack, your book is out there. It's on Amazon. It's on Audible. I consumed it, uh, really in like a week. And it was, it was really cool to hear the story of IKEA and of Southwest and of all the, the examples that you mentioned there. Like IKEA, like what a 17 year old kid, like, Right? Really cool. Um, yeah. And, you know, people think the innovation stack is some sort of memoir, um, and it's not. I mean, Square's one of the examples, but I really saw this pattern. And that's why I wrote the book because, look, nobody wants to hear about one company, or if you do, you're weird, you know. Um, but something that is a phenomenon that's repeatable, that's interesting. Yes, certainly. So the innovation stack on Audible, on Amazon, comes highly recommended from yours truly, jimmckelvey.com as well. I want to start, really, really start here. We were, you know, shooting the, the shit with, uh, with the stock and whatnot. But yeah. one of my favorite quotes from the book, the price of expressing an original thought is intellectual quarantine. And I related to that a lot. Wow. Can you explain that? You, you said it. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> a, I, I forgot I said it. No, it's, it's, it's so clear. Um, God, I got to read this book. Um, <laughs> no, but you, you end up, um, if you're doing something that is different, people will not accept you. And one of the things that, you know, we talk about innovation, we talk about you know, everybody wants to be unique. Everyone wants to be original. No, we don't. Like, I want to blend in as much as possible. Social you know? proof. Yeah, social proof, fit in. Um, you know, like I'm wearing uncomfortable blue jeans because my comfortable blue jeans are no longer cool, right? You know, the old baggy ones I used to wear, those yeah, things yeah. are phenomenally comfortable. And I got these straight leg things that make me right. feel like I'm in a G suit, you know. Um, but that's for me to fit in. Uh, and if you are going to do something truly original, the initial response you should expect is rejection. And it doesn't make the rejection better, but if you're prepared for it, it's a little bit easier to handle. Yeah. I, um, in relation to intellectual quarantine being the, the price that you paid to really write the innovation stack, like, you know, really unique book, uh, like you, you went like two years without, <laughs> without like reading another book. And the reason I related to it, Jim, was because when I was writing my first book, I like it's so I had just finished the subtle art of not giving an, uh, you know what, by yeah. Mark Manson. Yeah. And I like it was so and and high performance habits by Brendan Burchard. And so it was very. There's a lot of parallels between. My first book and and those two books. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because you get infected. And, and yeah, we all do. do. Yeah. So when I started writing the innovation stack, I immediately went on an information diet. Mm. So I stopped reading books. I stopped reading periodicals. Like I basically shut myself off from the world uh, as much as I could for, God, it took almost three years. And during that time, I would not read anything. And I, I, my you know, favorite authors were writing stuff and I, you know, their books were piling up and I was like, I'm not going to read that. I'm not going to read that. That looks really interesting. Yes. I'm not going to read that because I was in danger of infecting myself with the same thing that got you, which is you know, great ideas. And then, then you, you, know, you, you sleep on it for two months and all of a sudden you think it's yours. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you think it's an original Crazy. idea. And, oh, God. So, and I don't even know if the, the idea I had in the book was original because I, I really wanted it to not be because I wanted an excuse to not write a book um, because I've written three others. And it's a ton of work for me. I don't write quickly. Um, I labor over every word and uh, rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. So I was sort of looking for an excuse, hoping that you know what I discovered was sort of not unique. Um, but then I found this thing that I you know I talk about in the book. But it's it's the fact that English doesn't even have a word to describe the phenomenon that I was discussing, which is the original concept of entrepreneurship. This idea that uh, a business that does something unique is different than a business that can copy what is already known to work. And yeah. that was a, once once I realized that we didn't even have a word for it, I was like, well, that's why there's no literature on this. Like nobody discusses this. It's not like, I don't think people have had sort of parts of the ideas. It's that even if they've had it, let's, so let's say you, you've come to the same conclusions that I've come to and you go, oh my God, this is super powerful. We need to talk about it. How the hell are you going to do that? Like, how are you going to talk about it? Like, you cannot use the English vocabulary yes. and describe the phenomenon that we're talking about. Like, you literally have to start with a different set of words. So, when I realized that that was the reason, I was like, oh, God, I got to write a book. Yeah. I So, there's this really interesting balance between, like, originality and, and copying. Because another another quote from the book is, copying is the main skill we need in the workforce. Yet, you also make a make a note to uh you know copying you know you, you say that about copying but you're also valuing originality like yes. there's a, there's a really interesting balance going on here yeah it's a tough balance cuz first of all you have to skewer what is sort of false originality okay um i talk about my friend with a yellow car like he's like I'm very original because I drive a yellow car. And and he likes to think of himself that way. And and I don't want to, you know, sort of uh, disabuse him of that notion. But, like, he's still driving a car and he still uses uh-huh. transportation the way everybody else is. Like, you know, if he was getting around St. Louis in a camel, then I might say, oh, well, that's pretty original. Because sure. nobody, you know, nobody's riding a camel through to the streets of St. Louis, Missouri. But um, it's it's a difficult balance to maintain because you are taught in society – how to copy at every level. Sure. And you were supported. How to fit in. Yeah, how to fit in. Copying is like, line. yeah, good manners. Like, I, I mean, I got my daughters in the other room and uh, we are trying to teach her to lie right now. And by lie, I mean, we're teaching her to not tell her, you know, you know, aunt that she's smelly. You know, if the aunt comes <laughs> by and, you know, you know, and Peggy comes by and my daughter starts, uh, you know, oh, you smell funny. Like, no, 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 you don't say that. Um, so we're we're trying to make her copy the be- good behaviors of other people. Right. And copying is it's super important. If you're a bad copier, you pretty much die. Um, well, you literally die, die genetically because you need a good copy of genes to to even survive as, as an organism. But but copying is just so important to all the stuff we do that you have to have respect for it. But then, while maintaining respect for copying, I believe it's important to then recognize when copying doesn't work. Mm. And that is sort of like looking into the abyss for most people. Most people, when they are confronted with a problem for which there is no known solution and for which they have not been properly prepared, will stop. They just say, I'm I'm not going to do this. And 
you know, that's appropriate if the solution is available and you can become qualified. But unfortunately, too many bright people stop when there is no known solution. And then our talent sits on the sideline. And um, actually, the person I wrote the book for is a lady who I think is super talented, but every time she comes up against a problem where she's not been trained and qualified to solve it, she says, well, I can't do this. I'm not qualified. And, and my response to her is, look, the first time anything is done in human history, it is done by somebody who was unqualified. You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. The Wright brothers, they were not qualified to fly an airplane. And meanwhile, they had a super qualified person with like 50 million bucks from the uh, government like competing against them, and he couldn't do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, a guy with a bunch of credentials. But again, if you think about the act of actually piloting a plane, since a plane had not been built, no human on the planet was, you know, a qualified pilot in a, you know, heavier than air uh, craft. But but that doesn't mean we can't do it. It just means that the first time something's done, it's always done by somebody who is unqualified. <laughs> yeah. Uh, applied to the business sense, I mean, you kind of talk about this. I mean, you were before Square. You're just, you were a glass blower. Yeah. Super unqualified in the world of credit cards and money and Yes. <laughs> Wildly unqualified yeah. to do what we and, did. And I yeah. mean, Jack, I mean, Jack wasn't qualified in the world no. of finance either. No, he didn't know anything about it. You know, he knew less than me because like, I'd at least accepted credit cards as a as a business person. Jack had never even been a business person, so he didn't even know like the other side of the equation. What like, was he, he like? He was like five years old, right? <laughs> I'm kidding, but he was, uh, like, he was like 17 or 18, I think. Yeah, I, I started yeah. working with with him when he was 15. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we hooked up again at the uh, start of Square, and that was, phew, I guess, he was in his early 30s. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got so. it. But so applied to the business sense, this balance between originality and, and copying, like think about in Square, what was what was copied, what was super original? So we copied everything we could. Um, but With we traditional credit card. Yeah, we, we, we copied everything process. we could up to the point where it impacted what we were building. So we had this goal to provide inexpensive, fair payments to small businesses and people. And we didn't differentiate between a business and a person. So like, you know, Jordan, the trainer, Jordan, the training business, like we don't care. You know, it's all going to probably go to the same account, right? It's probably all going to go to your checking. Like you probably don't have, you know, a whole different set of books for your personal training business. Maybe you do, but most personal trainers don't. When I was um, still training yeah. back, yeah, I did. It, it, yeah, it didn't matter. It yeah, it didn't matter, right? Your business of one, right? Army of one. And so uh, we had this goal to make a simple system that somebody like me, actually wasn't like me, it was actually me, uh, could use. And, and that was the initial target. And it turns out to hit that target, we had to do 14 things that had never been done before. But everything else that we did from renting office space to hiring programmers to, you know, uh, having accounts payable and receivables and, you know, the fact that we had an office and that, you know, we get used to certain corporate structure. Like we copied a ton of stuff. I would say 90% of Square was copied and 10% was original. And I may be even be flattering myself by thinking that we did 10% original. <laughs> it could have been 2% original work. But there was a component that was original, and that was what was significant because the copy stuff is available to anybody. Like anybody could just replicate Square by doing, you know, the let's say it's 98% of the stuff that we were doing that was unoriginal. 
that's readily available. But that last 2% is what protects us. Yes. And I mean, what do you do when, uh, like, is co- so copying is a sound strategy to a certain point. And then you add your slight twists. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, but you don't, okay, so I see what you're doing. You're trying to make it a formula, right? <laughs> I, I know because your listeners want a formula because we all want a formula, right? Sure. Everybody wants a formula. So you're just like, Jim. I know you've never done this, but tell us the formula. And what I'm going to tell you is the formula is is a process. It's not a checklist. And it is something that the last components of which I can't tell you because by definition, they are going to have to be unique. Me nor anybody else can tell you. If you're, if you're doing what I'm going to suggest you do, which is a massively powerful strategy for solving problems in the world, um, then by definition, I can't give you the last steps. But I can give you the general formula. And the general formula is pick a problem that hasn't been solved before. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And generally, that's going to scare off almost everybody. And then you have to figure out why nobody has solved it yeah. and figure out the 10 things or 20 things or 50 things that are necessary to solve it. And if you solve it and you've chosen a significant problem, then you will create a company that, at least in all the companies that I studied, and I studied, God, I studied over 50, um, you'll you'll just dominate your market. And sure. I mean, I'm talking like all the founders become billionaires. You have a worldwide yeah. reputation. Like it's a big deal. Yeah, like, yeah. Companies that do this, I mean, I'm not making light of this. This is, this is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. I have an idea, Jim. I, 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 what do you think about this? I, I thought about it the, well, actually while I was like listening to your book, funny enough. And I think it's, it's like there's some originality to it, but there's also some copying. Like, for example, like Fiji water. Like, you can get a, you can get a subscription yeah. of Fiji water. You can, you can get that delivered to your door. Thing, um, there's, there's all this with like, you know, all these different, ver- like, not all water is equal. Uh, I'm a big water guy. And so there's different like mineral contents in waters and it's measured in like, I think it's like, what's it, TPS or DDS? And like, yep. so example, right. purified water, like the number is, is zero. Like it's stripped of all the minerals that are like good. Uh, San Pellegrino, for example, is like a thousand. Um, there's like different other waters that are like 7,000. Others that are like, like yeah. Fiji is probably like 300. Um, my problem with Fiji is that it comes exclusively in a plastic bottle, which really isn't that healthy. And I don't trust the way it's shipped. If there's any heat, it, it, I don't, I just don't like heat yeah. plastic. And it, yeah. have, you're getting it, PCBs leaching out. You get uh, right. polymethyl methacrylate, you get uh, polyacrylonitrile. Yeah. My, my dad was a polymer chemist. My dad actually invented the plastic Coke bottle. Oh, wow. So he was, so I can, I can tell you like all this stuff that is leaching out yeah. of your pure water bottle into your pure body yeah so yeah. i was but jim i, I was I, I yeah i don't like yeah. drinking from plastic ever i was thinking a water subscription solution you know you get seven 64 or 80 ounces shipped to you per day yeah. you know different levels of subscription how, or however much water you want to drink in a yeah. day comes to you every week in a um in a package, you, sure. you know, enough for like four per day, four 16 ounces bottles per day, perhaps in aluminum or glass. And it has a, a very high mineral content. So like, I mean, really change your water, change your life, I believe. 
And I can, look in Florida. I'm the the water. The water's not minerally rich. It's filled with chemicals. Like I gotta. I don't know. I just like at. I just went to Whole Foods right now, and I just got. Uh, I just got some water in and in, um, called. Uh, I don't even know what it's called, but it's from the Australian Alps, and and uh, it's in aluminum, and uh, it says Mur- "Murder Your Thirst" on it, which is pretty cool. It's badass water, but like. Oh yeah, I've had a bottle of that. Or yeah, can. it's a can. It comes in a can because they don't they don't bottle it. But yeah, I've seen. So it. I feel like I feel like there's a good balance here between like a, a originality of the service. And the value proposition, and the, and the copy, like and and the cause, and the and so the, this is funny because I actually have a water subscription. Yes, to, I, and, and who is it? So I uh, have. So there was a there was a taste test in the United States of the best water, and the winning water happens to be the St. Louis Municipal Water Supply. Mm. We built. We beat Colorado Springs in the finals. Wow! And uh, you've heard of Dasani. Yeah, a horrible, horrible, horrible. I think you can taste the difference between Dasani. Yeah, the pH is four and it's as purified garbage with no mineral content, and it's it's. So Dasani source sources a lot of their water from the St. Louis Municipal Water Supply. No way. Yeah, um, but what I would say is this: maybe it's a placebo um, in my head. <laughs> well, I, yeah. Um, so I used to win a lot of money. Uh, betting people that they couldn't differentiate uh, vodkas. Um, I made thousands of dollars uh, on, on that bet. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I have a water subscription. It's called, I have water. Like I literally have a sink, swimming pool full of stuff that tastes better than most of the stuff that's sold in bottles. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the thing. Uh, what is the problem that you are trying to solve? Is the problem tr- you're trying to solve one that you can't get good tasting water. It's not taste. It's well, about health. It's about health. Okay, so you're t- you're worried about the pH or the mineral content? Both. Okay. Well, I mean, so you know the the jury's out on whether high pH or low pH is good for you. Okay, and there are camps on both sides that are non scientific uh, that will argue that. Um, and in Florida, there's a bunch of low pH bias. Um, but I guess here's the question. If you can actually tell the difference and it actually makes a difference, uh, then, yeah, I would think you would have a an interesting product. But yes. what I would say before you do that is there are a lot of existing technology. I mean, reverse osmosis to start mm-hmm. and then remineral, remineralization. Oh. Um, so, like, instead of having a bottle show up every day, which is environmentally disastrous, yeah. like, I've already got water coming into my house. Like, if I could just make it taste good and hit right. whatever pH you could hit. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's, that would be my solution because I, I would, want to, fill my, to, I would want to fill it. my swimmer po- swimming pool with it. Right? Yeah. A lot yeah. less waste this way. Yeah. I get it. Okay. So, but again, like, you, you focus on the problem. Like, what's the problem? And is, is it health? Is it really the fact that your water is the wrong pH or are you eating too many damn tomatoes? More about you the know? mineralization. That, yeah, right, right. That's, <laughs> tomatoes are, are very uh, 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 inflammatory and, and uh, sick, but that's a different conversation. But yeah, yeah, I get it. I think, I mean, it, it wouldn't, it doesn't aim to serve the, you know, the average American. It aims to serve like, like I'm, I'm a health freak. Like I, I strive on just making my diet perfect. I do treat myself. I absolutely do. Yeah. But I like worry about everything down to the water. So like the person yeah. like, 
You need to take up smoking, man. <laughs> like I, I need to send you a pack. I got a pack of Herb Kelleher's cigarettes. I, oh don't, my God. I don't have it in my office, but I, <laughs> like he gave me a signed pack of Cools. And I'll, uh, like, you need to start smoking or something, <laughs> and just get over this health kick. Um, not to be unhealthy, but like the people who worry about their health mm. obsessively tend to be less healthy than the people who just sort of get over it. Um, it's the mm. same thing with happiness, by the way. Like the people who are worried about whether they're happy are some of the least happy I people see. that I think are, I see. oh, I don't, you know, I do this for self-actualization. I was like, oh, really? Well, I was mm. just hanging out with my buddy. Like I don't schedule time for self-actualization. So, so I would say, you know, not to give life advice here, yeah. but uh, you open the can of worms. Like I would say, if 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 you enjoy it, if it makes you happy, absolutely do it up to that level. Yeah. But beyond that level, you're just stressing yourself out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm gl- I'm glad I uh, no I'm glad I asked. Uh, I'm glad I ran it by. And it's that's an it, it, the more you focus on something, it's like the harder you try, the worse you do. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, well, up to some point, you, you yeah, want to you want to get your reps in. You want to get your you want to get your definitely the, the, you, doing the work is super important. Um, and uh, like I would just watch the Michael Jordan documentary on Netflix, uh, it's you know, Last Dance, yes. and and people were talking about Jordan being a jerk. Like, well, he's such a jerk. He's such a jerk. He's such a jerk. I was like, no, no, no. The guy wanted to win, and he was trying to bring a team with him. And some of the techniques he used were you know, pretty intimidating, mm. but you know, these were all grown men on a national sports team. And I, I didn't feel like he was a jerk. I felt like he was very driven. And I mean, yeah, I, look at the results. I mean, that should really be what yeah. matters. Yeah. You know, and I was like, I've, I've cracked the whip harder than he has on occasion. Mm. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes that's what's necessary. Sure. Um, yeah. Y- you don't want to live there, but uh-huh. you, you got to be willing to visit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jim, going, Speaking, picking up on the earlier thread about uh, copying, uh, a company that copies a lot, uh, Amazon. What, what do you think about Amazon? Are, are, <laughs> are, are they too big? Are they too predatory? Uh, I know so, you had a run-in with them where they tried to copy you. Yeah, so I love the fact that I'm hawking a book right now and I'm about to knock Amazon. That's that's like so stupid, but what the hell? Let's do it. Um, Amazon's the reason I wrote the innovation stack. And the reason I wrote it was because Amazon did what they're very good at doing, which is they copied Square and started uh, a competing product. And this was while we were still a startup. Um, And we were terrified because when Amazon does this, the startup dies. And it had happened in every case that we looked for. Because what, you know, the first thing we, the first thing we did, we wanted to find a copy that, a company that we could copy and say, oh, well, this company beat Amazon. Nobody beat Amazon. It was a null set. So all of a sudden, we were on our own, and then we looked at what we could do, and we realized that we couldn't do that much differently than we were already doing, so we basically kept doing what we were already doing, i.e., we didn't change anything, uh, including matching Amazon's price, which I guess we could have done, but that would have been stupid because then we'd have literally lost money on every transaction. Um, But the end result of this was after a year, Amazon relented and and just got out of the business. Yeah. And um, in in respect for Amazon, so I will I will give them one uh, one shout out, and that is they gave a square reader to all of their former customers, which I thought was totally classy. And that reminded me of like the old days 
in the wars, you know, like in the Civil War, when the, the opposing generals would like, you know, after the war was over, you know, they'd, they'd have dinner together, you know. Like, oh, wow. Like it was there, – there was this civility cool. to uh, military conflict that has basically been eliminated in the last hundred years. But it 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 used to be that warring parties could – could still break bread together. I think. I think you know there were some warring generals that probably get or get along better than uh, some congressmen today. Um, and yet, when Amazon, you know, relented, they they did it in a cool way. But yes. but the reason I wrote the book was that I couldn't explain why. So I was happy we won, but I was like, what the hell happened? And I felt like somebody who'd been you know like tossed out of an airliner at thirty thousand feet and survived the drop. Yes. You know. Well. And, the, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, because 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 that it was it was a survive. It was almost survivor guilt. It was like, why mm. are we the only company that has ever survived Amazon? What did we do differently? And what happened? And like, they undercut your price. Yeah, they undercut our price, but they undercut everybody's price. But that always exactly. works for them. It, it didn't does. work in this case because you did. We had an nothing. Well, it it, it it turns out that it's 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 more. You than stuck nothing. to your guns. You stuck to your innovation stack. We we had th- this thing that protected us. And I started looking for what protected us. And all of a sudden, so I started looking for other companies in similar situations throughout history. And I found, um, I, I found a ton. I found, I found a bunch of them. And then the problem with that was that all of them were uh, historical examples. So all the founders were dead, you know? So I couldn't go talk to somebody who was alive. And the problem with, with doing research in history is that you can confuse um, uh, being correct with selection bias. So, for instance, if I'd just chosen the right um, examples, I could convince myself of anything. So, I, sure. I had- Sure. Yeah. So, what you I cherry did- Cherry pick it. Yeah. yeah. You cherry pick and then you think you're right. And I didn't want to do that. Um, and I wasn't actually planning on writing a book. I, w- I just wanted to figure out if I was right or not. So, I, I called up Herb Kelleher, who was the founder of Southwest Airlines. And they were one of the companies that I thought was a perfect example. And now, Herb was still alive and I flew down- uh, to see him, he was very gracious, gave me a day of his time. And uh, we, you know, I basically said, Mr. Kelleher, here's, here's, what, here's what I think I have found. Does it apply to what you have lived through? And he got real excited and he said, yes. He, he, he said, you know, you're, you're looking at this in a way that I, I didn't look at it, but this is what we did and this explains it. And he, he even added a few ideas that I hadn't thought of. And then, <laughs> and then he gave me a homework assignment. He's like, Jim, you need to tell the world. He's like, you need to write this. And um, that's what became the book. Yes. So I think now is then the appropriate time. People are probably wondering, what is the innovation stack? So it's really simple. It's this idea of invention being multiple steps. And I, and this isn't the big idea. The, the, the big idea is how that manifests and all the, all the different things that that means. But uh, just to... Just to explain, I'm using an example of Southwest. Okay, so Southwest wanted to be uh, a little regional airline, and they wanted to inexpensively fly people between three cities in Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Dallas, Houston, and I think San Antonio, but uh, it was this little triangle. It was drawn on a napkin. Um, and they said, well, we're just going to give, you know, accessible, simple, cheap fares, right? And they got attacked mercilessly. You know, they spent four years in court. They had all these yeah. injunctions. Uh, uh, you know, the the airlines torpedoed their IPO. They had the government, you know, all over them. I mean, like it was a giant war. Okay, and in responding to this war, like blocked fuel pumps and um, 
and and they had they had so much hostility targeted at them that the way they responded was not to give up but to create something that allowed them to survive and it wasn't just one or two things it was like 40 right and they were doing all these things differently that nobody else was doing yeah. and all of a sudden they had the most efficient airline in the world mm-hmm. like on the planet southwest airlines was untouchable and then um the government deregulated air travel and all of a sudden you have this hyper competitive super being in the form of this regional texas airline that just just took over the globe i mean well right. it didn't take over the globe it's it, they stayed they stayed in the us but their business model just trounced all the other airlines in mm-hmm. the united states and they became the biggest carrier in the us and I, well, like probably the most profitable too. I mean, I think, oh god, yeah, They've, yeah, the uh, like the not the most profitable, but 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 the profitable airlines because most of the other airlines, you know, eventually went bankrupt. Yeah, I mean, that's a horrible industry United, to get in. Bankrupt, Continental bankrupt, Brand bankrupt, Texas. Yeah. I mean, like there are two hundred fifty bankrupt airlines in the United States. That's what, now, American Airlines too. I think everybody. Yeah, every, name it, a carrier. I would never get them. into <laughs> into the into the airline business like under any circumstances. It is a destroyer of fortunes. Yeah, yeah, weird. But not Southwest. Southwest's uh, founders became billionaires. Oh. They, but they did so by using an innovation stack. Like the power that allowed Southwest to do that was exactly the same power that allowed Square to dominate its market. It allowed IKEA to become the biggest furniture store in the world. I mean, there there are fifty examples. I only. I only talk about a few in the book, but I mean, literally, you can pick industry after industry, and they're examples. And, and for so, for example, like I just, it's it's in the book in great detail, and all the you know the the forty things about, or the sixteen things about Southwest, like their innovation stack. Yeah. Southwest wanted to do X, and because they wanted to do X, that means they also had to do this, and because yes. they wanted to do that, then they had to do that too, and because they had to do that, then they had to do that. It's like yep. this progression of like. This iterative approach where one thing naturally, like, all right, I guess we got to do this now. We want to do this. So I hope that makes sense for people. But I mean, seriously, the innovation stack, I really enjoyed the book. I So I listened to it on Audible. It's one of those books that I really, I know your assistant sent me the PDF, but I just want the physical book. So I'm going to have to go order that. Um, So the innovation stack, really good book. And then to continue, you start then... I see like other companies like copying you now too. I know PayPal, they started they, they started doing like a reader very much like yours. And yeah. I actually I actually got it. I never used it. I got it many years ago. I just wanted to like see it, have it. Um, then there's like other companies like Clover and there's all yeah. sorts of them now that are like yeah. that have copied you. It's oh yeah. And you don't and I imagine you're like, eh, whatever. You don't even flinch. Well, I mean, look, I mean, it's somewhat flattering. It's somewhat annoying. Yes. And, um, you know, PayPal has one division that does nothing but copy Cash App. You know, Venmo has done nothing but copy Cash App straight up for like the last three years. Cash App is is your thing too. Cash App is, yeah. Yeah. You know, and look, I mean, it's part of the deal. Like if you're going to be first and invent a new industry, then people are going to copy you. Mm. And- to the extent that you hold true to some of the principles I outline in the book, you can maintain dominance over that industry. Uh, to the point that you abandon those principles, you will be pushed aside by faster copiers. What yeah. was first, Jim? Uh, Cash App or Venmo? Uh, Venmo was first. That's what I thought. And they bought yeah. Venmo. 
Yeah. Uh, so uh, Venmo was a company that basically failed and was bought by Braintree. It and failed. Braintree was bought by uh, PayPal. And PayPal didn't even know what they had. Um, and then we developed Cash App because we wanted to solve a specific problem. And then we started doing it. And then it started working like crazy. And then PayPal copied everything we did. Yes. But I mean, here, you want to do something? Let's let's do this in real time, okay? So I'm going to turn on my phone. I use an Android phone because I'm a- Oh, I'm a, you're an alien. No, dude. I, the world <laughs> uses Android, okay? Like you're like the people I hang out with are not iPhone people. Wow. The people um, I hang out with are iPhone people. What does that say? That's, that's interesting. I, I work in a bad part of town with guys who can't afford iPhones. Like my- <laughs> Like you're not going to see the, my my peeps carry uh, Android, so I carry Android. But let's let's just take a look at the Android or the Android uh, the Google Play Store, okay? Mm-hmm. And we'll pull here the top charts, okay, uh, of everything in the world, okay. This is every app every in the app, world. Yeah. TikTok number one there. Let's uh, Zoom is number one. Oh. Wow. TikTok is number two. This is in the world. What's number three in the world? Cash app. Do you see Venmo anywhere? I don't see it. I do see not see Venmo it. Venmo anywhere. There they oh, are. In the Wait, like 18 or something. 19. 19. And that's a power law. Okay, so, I mean, here's the thing. Copying is totally legit, and it works. And I, I do it, like, most of my life. Like, I copy everything. Um, uh, well, not everything. Almost everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a point at which you should be willing to do something original, but it it will be terrifying. And when I say terrifying, I mean I mean literally evoking the fear response, evoking that part of your reptile brain that is that is trying to protect you. And your friends and family are going to tell you don't do that because they're going to try to protect you. Like all the people who love you and dearly want your best interests to be served are going to tell you to do stuff that is wrong. <laughs> mm. And it's not just because, because someone loves you doesn't mean they know what's best for you. Well, because they don't understand it either, right? They're they're applying their metric, and and you know what I what I do in the book is I spend a lot of time talking about why we're wired this way, and it's appropriate. Like this is not some accident. This is not some mistake. It's not some sort of flaw in the genome. Like it is the genome. Like the reason we survive as a species is because we do this copying so well that it is literally wired into our DNA and it's wired into our society. It's wired into our educational system. It's certainly yeah. wired into business. It's wired into the way we finance business. It's wired into all this stuff. And as soon as you step out of that world, okay, you are, it, I'll use intellectual quarantine again, but like you're, you're, you're lonely and persecuted and it's, it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And, and, and people stop, they do it and then they get this, overwhelming wave of negativity and uh, and they're not prepared for it. And then you go, whoa, I better stop or quickly copy something else. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll claim to be original, but I'm going to start, you know, playing the same three chords that everybody else plays. Right. Uh, and I just don't think we want humanity limited that way. Like I just, I think like it would be terrible to go through your life and, you know, life is going to present you with three or four or 10 or I don't know how many, but there will be moments where you can actually do truly original work, like on a planetary scale. There's not going to be a lot, but there will be those moments where, you know, just right. your skill set and the problems you're encountering, 
all those things align. You get that syzygy of planets where everything lines up, and all mm. of a sudden, now's your moment, okay? Now, maybe you don't recognize it. Nothing I can do to help that. Um, but maybe you do recognize it, okay? And maybe you go, wow, now's my moment. But then you're totally unprepared for that wave of cold water or for the way it's going to unfold, or you don't know what innovation looks like, and, and you get stopped. And um, the... The mo the best compliment I received about the book is also the most heartbreaking thing that I heard about the book. It was from a guy who was reviewing it, and I, I can't use his name, but he's he's famous. Okay, like he's he was in a like he's he's a he's a famous, sure. very successful multimillionaire. I was I was actually showing him the book at his house. He has a painting on his wall that's worth more than my house, like <laughs> the whole damn house, yeah. and and all my cars and. You know, That's everything funny. you could basically pile everything I own into one pile, and it would still be worth less than this one painting that he's got hanging in his living room with like twenty other paintings that are probably all more expensive. Anyway, that's this guy, and he's reading the book, and he said to me, "I wish I'd read this when I was twenty, because I'm lucky. I, I read it when I was twenty-two. <laughs> you're lucky, or I hope I hope you're lucky because here's the thing. He stopped." He said, I was doing this. I was halfway through what I think was an innovation stack that could have changed this whole business. And I quit because it was just too tough. He said, if I'd recognized that I was at least on a path that was sometimes successful, I'm not, I, w I might not have given up. You know, And this is from a guy who, by any measure, has been wildly successful. Yeah. So thank you well, to yeah. this guy. I should well, permission to use his name. When, when is something that you talk about in the book, mastering the art of timing. Yes. And uh, is, it is important. Uh, you do talk about that in the innovation stack. Uh, Jim, I do, I, I have, I have more questions and I'm really enjoying this. Are you, yeah. you're good on time right now? Uh, yeah, I got till noon. So. Okay, perfect. Uh, so I guess, yeah, I'll ask this one. I know what you did when when uh, Amazon undercut your price. But say, I mean, generally, I hate to like try to fit this into a formula, but like what what are some guiding principles? What should you, you do when someone undercuts your price? Uh, first, know what kind of business you have. The first thing you need to know is, am I in a pack? In which case, you better respond. Or do I have an innovation stack? In which case, you can ignore it. Yeah, Okay. I mean, I, 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 and, and this, is, this is the other thing about the book. A lot of the advice I give in the book is precisely the wrong thing to do if you are not an innovation stack company. Okay. Then you know, how, how, do you, how does one create an innovation stack? Perhaps I already have a business. Is it too late? Is, so how would you, you go about You that? don't do it by sitting there going to some, right. you know, like management retreat and saying, yeah, oh, we yeah, need yeah, to build yeah. one of these things, right? There's no checklist. It's so, – so the process doesn't begin with innovation, okay? The process begins with an original problem, okay? So you can't just shortcut it and say, I want to have an innovation stack and I want to be like yes. a world-dominant company. Therefore, I'm going to think really hard and do a bunch of stuff that nobody's done. Start okay. with the original problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's sort of false innovation. That's, that's, that's the equivalent of, you know, saying, 
well, I want to have unique DNA, so I'm just going to go irradiate the shit out of myself. Like I'm going to go stand in front of, you know, uh, you know, what it was a gamma rays that made Spider-Man, whatever that, you know, I, you know, I'm going to go volunteer for cleanup duty at Chernobyl and, uh, you know, you know, sweep up polonium, uh, 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 until I've rearranged my genetic code. And I guarantee you, if you do sweep up enough polonium, you'll, you'll, you'll rearrange your genetic code and you probably won't like the results. Mm-hmm. Like there is a chance. Let's admit there is a chance you will have superpowers. There is a chance. We got, we cannot rule out uh. the fact that, that the genetic code can be altered in some way that makes us better and makes you superpowered. But I don't like those odds. Yeah, right? I don't like them either. Okay. And, and sitting there and taking a company that should be copying and say, we're going to force innovation on this company is basically like, you know, voluntary, you know, putting on your yellow booties and heading to Chernobyl, yeah. right? So, so let's not do that. Um, so the first step is recognize, recognize the difference. And this is why I spent so much time in the beginning of the book sort of harping on what entrepreneurship is versus business. Yes, that's an important one. I like when you talk about that. Yeah. So the, the, A lot of the, people I, call themselves entrepreneurs. Well, yeah. I mean, and it's totally a legit use of the term today to say that anybody who is in business is an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Like if I start an accounting company, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an accounting entrepreneur. If I start a coffee company, if I start an airline, if I start – like I can start anything that's a business and I, I am, I've earned the title entrepreneur by the current definition. And I do not use the current definition of entrepreneur because it's it's effectively useless. Like why not say business person? It's easier to spell. It's less characters. You know, it's not got that weird pronunciation. Like it's it's a better term. Um, the word entrepreneur exists in the English language because an economist a hundred years ago needed a term to differentiate between business and all this other crap, right? And this other crap, which which didn't use the same logic and didn't have the same metrics and didn't have the same economic phenomenon around it. That's what was entrepreneurship. And so he, he, he basically coined the term and popularized its use to differentiate people who were not copying from people who were. The copy people, the copiers were called business people and they made money and they were successful and they were you know, on the chambers of commerce and everybody loved them. Mm-hmm. And the entrepreneurs were crazy. Okay, but every once in a while, one of these crazy entrepreneurs would do something like, oh, invent the auto industry, or you know, invent you know the Bessemer steel process, or like invent like there, there were just these massive breakthroughs of entrepreneurship that literally moved the world forward. And then the business people came along behind them and copied. I see. Yes, I like that distinction. I would say honestly, as much as I like to think of myself as an entrepreneur, I'm a business person. I, That's smart. I have, a, I have a podcast production agency. You know, we do done for you podcasts. I'm not the only one that that has done that, Jim. Yeah, no, I'm that's a business great. person. I, that's I, smart. I, you're you're making more money. Like, yeah. you know, like I met uh, one of the uh, a guy uh, Curry was his last name. Um, Adam Curry. Like he claims to have done the first podcast. He was uh, originally he was a, a VJ on MTV. Uh huh. You know. And I talked to Adam because I was trying to buy Curry.com from him because I needed I needed his last name. <laughs> so I mean that's why I was talking to Adam. Um, but uh, you know he claims to have been the guy who invented it. Now maybe that's true, maybe it isn't. But he's not some podcasting monster. Like he's not. Like they're 
a hundred people who have podcasts that are way better than his. I mean, better by sure. like the objective measures, For sure. you know, more listeners, more revenue, better sponsors, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so like being first doesn't guarantee anything. Definitely. It does not. Uh, related to, to pricing again, you, you talk about this also in the innovation stack. Uh, should you be the cheapest? Like what, what, what are the advantages to being the, the cheapest versus, you know, and, and again, I guess it's dependent on your, your business. So, yeah, I mean, you've got to know your company. Um, yeah. The question that I look at is what can you charge as opposed to what should you charge? Um, so the first question is what are your costs and what are, what is it possible for you to run your company and still make a profit, which you should do. Um, but if you're, if you have an innovation stack in almost every case, and I'm trying to think if I've got any counterexamples and I can't think of any right now. So let's just say in every case where you've got an innovation stack, you will have a cost advantage over companies that sort of appear to be competition. And I say it appear to be because in the minds of your customers, they probably won't be equivalents. You know, like people who were flying United were not flying Southwest. It was a different customer pool. Um, but sometimes there was overlap. Um, but the idea is that you will have this cost advantage. And then the question is, where do you set your price? And the interesting thing that I discovered is that there are sort of two philosophies. Yes. One is the traditional business philosophy, which says, maximize your revenue. You know, set your price as high as you can to make as much money, i.e. profit, as, as is possible. Um, you can still have the lowest price in the market, but lowest being a comparative which you'll use to judge yourself against other companies. There's another way. Which Herb is, was not focused on maximizing. No, Herb was not doing that. Uh, neither was uh, Comprad at Ikea or uh, APG Anini, who built the biggest bank in the bank world. Bank of Italy, yes, Bank of Italy. Yeah, America. so these are... These are opportunities to price in a different way, and you price to maximize the utility of your customer. Uh, so you, you you build something that your customer can consume in mass amounts, and you really increase the business massively. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, a quarter of the merchants at one point in the United States that were processing credit cards were using Square. Now. That wasn't a quarter of the credit card volume. Like, you probably take all of Square's volume, it wouldn't add up to one Walmart. You know, one, one, you know Walmart has one, you know, merchant identification, mm. one, one mid, and, you know, Walmart v. Square, I think we've passed them since then, but like at the time, you, know, you could add up two million merchants and they wouldn't add up to one Walmart. Unbelievable. So, but, but we had the volume. We had massive volume. And we would give our customers something that Walmart didn't have, which was they knew what they were going to pay and Walmart didn't because even Mike Cook at Walmart told me they don't know what they have to pay for a charge card because the rules are so Byzantine. Weird. I don't know why everyone doesn't use Square. Like I love walking into a business gym and they have the the Square like cash like register and I'm just like, yes, you know, like they get it. Yeah, they get it. And it probably means their kitchen's cleaner. And it probably means right. a lot about other stuff too. Like totally. it's just, yeah, it's one of those things that, I, and I, I'm obviously highly biased on this, but I look at a company like that and I say, oh, these guys have, have questioned 
yeah. some of the other questions. They've, they've, they're, they're asking questions. They're not just you know sort of blindly totally. you know choking down some toast or micros. Um, Micros. Oh my God. I don't like that system, man. I I remember being a a server when I was 18 years old and man, I don't, it's a, it's a complicated system. And, uh, and just anyway, uh, the other, so I have two more questions before my final question, Jim. Okay. And the first one is, let me see here. Oh, yes. Disruption. Everyone's full. (laughs) I'm a, yes. I'm a disruptor, you know. Why you make the case for not focusing on disruption in the innovation stack? Why should people not focus on disruption? It's it's like one of your personal training clients saying, "All I want to do is curls and biceps." You know, it's like no, no, no. You got you got you got. There's balance. So disruption is a side effect, and it's a rare side effect of normal business competition, it interestingly enough is not a side effect of entrepreneurial competition. So Southwest, Ikea, Bank of America, the, the companies that I study that build these innovation stacks basically create new markets. They're not disrupting old markets. And if you focus on disruption, you will be in danger of getting sucked into this copying mentality. Because all you'll be doing is look. Oh, have we disrupted them yet? Have we disrupted them yet? Have you like so? Let's say let's say Square's job was to disrupt the banks. We're going to disrupt banking. Mm. Well, what's the first thing you got to do? Well, you got to see what banking looks like. So all I'm going to spend I do is my time looking at banks. Well, that's going to infect my thought, and then I'm going to start doing the same stuff. Well, well, like actually that kind of makes sense, you know? Oh, oh, well, maybe we should do that. Oh, you know, and, and pretty soon you're you're being sort of mentally co-opted by the thing you're supposedly disrupting. Um, statistically, when I studied companies that were supposedly dis- these super disruptors, they weren't. They were super expanders. They were they they made the party bigger. They didn't kick people out of it. Meaning, they made the party bigger. Like they made it e- more easily accessible. Perhaps yeah, accessible, accessible. Yeah. So you're you want to go visit your grandparents. Right, and uh, a ticket on United costs five hundred dollars, and a ticket on Southwest is seventy three. Yeah. Now you can visit your grandparents, mm-hmm. right? Uh, let's say you get sick and you need to go for cancer treatment. You live in a small town, okay? And they get a good cancer center at uh, MD Anderson in Houston, yeah. uh, but you live six hours away. You're either slabbed out in the back of a truck, you know, six hours each way, yeah. or uh, you take a 45-minute flight on Southwest for $15. Right. Yeah. You know, like like that's the level of change that you're talking about with making the party more accessible. And we did the same thing in Square. They did the same thing at Ikea. I get yeah. that's that, And it's that's sort of this interesting effect of having an innovation stack is you build opportunity for way more people. Yes. I'm curious, what do you think about um, like Spirit Airlines or Frontier, like I feel like they they copied Southwest on the the pricing front. Do you think that they're going to succeed in the long run, or are they just going to be one of the many Southwest copiers that end up failing? So it's interesting because I talk about this in the book. Southwest changed their pricing philosophy. Southwest ah. was the best case study I've had of somebody doing it right and then doing it wrong, mm. or or I should say, doing it one way and doing it ad- another way. Now the effect. Of so, if you're uh, if you have an innovation stack and you're pricing very aggressively, um, 
and then you decide to jack your prices up, uh, you'll make a lot more money for a short period of time. And during that time, a lot of companies will come in and start copying you. And Spirit and Frontier and Herb and I talked about this have been really serious threats to Southwest. Wow. None of that happened when Herb was in charge. So that happened after Herb retired, Southwest Airlines basically abandoned low price. Which is weird. I know. Kind of I sad. Mean, uh, well, I, I think it's sad, but I mean, look, I don't run their company, so they may have had a good reason to do it. I think the answer is probably more like that sort of gutless leadership and uh, decided to just make the easy money because you look like a hero. Like for the next four years, you're going to look like the best manager in yeah, the world. Maximize right? revenue. Yeah, yeah. You know, just like I could look like the most fun guy in the world by spending myself into massive debt. Yes. And uh, like, hey, Jim's always having a good time. Well, uh, yeah, that's going to end when his credit card bounces. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, I, I got to say, man, like this, this was so fun. The time flew by. I had fun. Sounds like you did too. And uh, again, yes. Innovation Stack on Amazon, Audible. Uh, we've been talking about it for really the past hour. And uh, .com. Uh Jim, I really, really appreciate it. My final question is if you could teach a course at a university, a course of your creation or otherwise, what would it be? This is a question I ask everyone at the end. Oh, so I've done this. Uh, I teach glass uh -huh. blowing. At Washington no University. Um, <laughs> and that's what I, you'd want, like in the ideal world, that's what you wanted to, you wouldn't want to teach yeah. anything else. Awesome. Well, I mean, I have, I could teach anything. I mean, I, I, you know, they named the engineering school after me. So uh, I could probably teach a class there. They'd probably, right. probably have to take me. You know, I'm, teach, <laughs> I'm teaching in the art school and the business school's offered to let me teach anything. So like, um, no, I literally have had this problem. And I decided to teach glass blowing because it's super cool. Nice. <laughs> so, um, uh, but you know, I don't think a lot of this stuff is appropriate in a university context. I think a lot of this is learned on the streets. Yeah. So you absolutely. know, absolutely. Well, Jim McKelvey, you're the man. Thank you very much, Jordan. This is super fun. Congrats. We've reached the end of this episode of Growth Mindset University. For more keys to success and methods to inspire your entrepreneurial spirit, head to jordanparis.com slash course and enroll in our free course to elevate your podcast to the next level. Be sure to pass the show along to someone you know who will benefit from the lessons learned in each episode and we'll catch you and them on the next episode of Growth Mindset University.